Good evening, everyone. Ready? And happy Tu B'Shvat. Um, you know, Tu B'Shvat is the Rosh Hashanah. Tu B'Shvat is the Rosh Hashanah for trees. And um, it refers to human beings because human beings are called Kia Adam Eitzasada, that man is the, the tree of the field. The interesting thing about Tu B'Shvat is that it's the only Rosh Hashanah that comes out in the middle of the month. The, the, the Mishnah tells us, the Talmud tells us that there are four Rosh Hashanahs in the year. We have the one that is the popular one, the first day of the month of Tishrei, it's Rosh Hashanah, where God judges the world for human beings and everything that relates to us. And then there is the Rosh Hashanah for, uh, for kings on the first day of Nisan, Rosh Hashanah for um, other types of things, for animals, Maeser Behema, on the first day of the Elul, and the various different things, the, the beginning, the opening Mishnah in, in tractate Rosh Hashanah. But they all come out in the beginning of the month. This Rosh Hashanah is the only one that comes out of mid-month. The reason why Rosh Hashanah always comes out in the beginning of the month, because Rosh is the beginning. Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of something. The beginning of something can only emerge as a point, as a small thing. At the beginning of the month, the moon is at a point. As we're receiving, the moon is receiving a tiny bit of light. Because the opening, any new entry of a new light, of a new idea, first this, uh, emerges as a point, like we learned last week, that's the difference between Chachma and Bina. When we begin processing uh, uh, ideas, the way the mind perceives it is first as a point, we're going to speak about that soon, and then we elaborate and find the details. So all the blessings that come from God and the newness always begins at the beginning of the month because that's a point. Rosh Hashanah for, for trees is unique, that right at the beginning, it's already in the full expanded state. The moon is full, which means we receive this blessing in fully manifest. So the blessing to everyone over here and to all of the Jewish people is that the blessings that Hashem has in store for each and every one of us should come down instantly and it should manifest to its, with its fullest power. It should come down with a big bang and it shouldn't take time. We all have so many good things that there are in our lives that we see they're good, but it's taking so much time. It's taking so much time. We want that the blessings should come instantly. Those who need to find the shidduch should find it instantly. And those who need to uh, have children, the bracha should manifest instantly. Parnassah shouldn't be like starting a small business and slowly, but it should happen like in, all in one shot in a great, big, expanded way. That's the great thing about, that is the great thing about Rosh Hashanah for trees. And Hashem should bless us all with that instant blessing in a fully expanded way. Um, tonight's class, welcome everyone. Tonight we're beginning round six in you versus yourself. Um, we're dealing with the perpetual battle that each and every one of us experience in our lives. The constant, the constant um, pull, that we're being pulled in different directions. We have a perpetual battle. One, we have a, a, a force that pushes us towards purpose and meaning and higher, a higher life. And then we have a very earthy a pull that pulls us towards materialism, and, and sometimes the unholy things. 
The reason we have that perpetual battle is as we learned earlier is because we are all made up, we are dual, we're beings and we're comp there's a duality within us because we're composed from two souls, a soul of light and a soul of darkness. And that's what makes them, that's the intrinsic state of the human being. So that's why it's inherent to the human condition and the human experience that we all are meant to battle. And we have days that they're shining brightly, we experience such, we have such clarity and such light in our lives. And then we have days, hours, moments of extreme darkness. And we fluctuate back and forth. Um, we learned in the previous classes, we learned about the two souls. In this class, or in last class, we began, we're holding in chapter three, we began to explore the nature of the soul of light, of the godly soul, the personality of, the, of that neshama. How does it operate? What is it made up? What's its design? It's very important for us to familiarize ourselves with the design of our godly soul, to understand its features, to, to understand the way it operates, and that is because that's how we can make the most out of it, and we can develop it, and make it a powerful force in our life. Because the soul develops as much, it needs attention, it needs to be fed, it needs to be taken care of, in order for it to develop, it needs to be clothed, it needs to be fed, uh, so that it can develop and, and fully realize its potential and its power. Now the animal side in us, Baruch Hashem, thank God by all of us, is well taken care of. It's always pampered very well. It's, it's, it's fed three times a day, sometimes more than three times a day. We, 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 we give it, we take care of it. The animal soul gives, is given its regimen, its constant exercise, daily exercise, so it builds strong muscles. And the animal soul is big, robust soul. Strong and healthy and kicking. The godly soul, on the other hand, by most of us, we don't pay the attention that we need to pay to the godly soul. So that soul is undeveloped, undernourished. Sometimes starving, emaciated. And it's only from time to time when we have mercy on our neshama, and we throw it some, something to eat. We give it a little bit to nibble on. Maybe we drag our body that might be interested in something else, and we bring it to a class, especially a class in mysticism and Hasidus. This is the food for the soul. What we study over here Wednesday night is the healthiest thing to develop the neshama. The neshama needs this to be able to develop. For a person to develop, I don't mean only this class, I mean the classes that are our, our deal with the, 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 the abstract and the mystical is what the neshama needs to develop itself as a healthy, as, as a, and it should be a power in our lives. If, uh, because if not for that, and you put, it would be like in a, in, a, in, a, in a boxing ring when you have a skinny, weak weakling and you put him in with a heavyweight champion. There is no chance. We all know what, 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 the, what the result of that fight is going to be. So when we try, when our soul is all, is all um, scrunched up and, and, and undeveloped, and, we try, and, and it's up against a, 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 the heavyweight champion of our animal consciousness, the soul, stands, the soul stands no chance. The soul will definitely be defeated. But when we feed our soul, and we develop the neshama, then, then at first, at least there is going to be a parallel fight. There is going to be... There is going to be you know, we're able to answer back to the unhealthy urges, cravings, and desires, and the wants 
that emerge from time to time and quite frequently, we have something to offer ourselves instead. Our animal soul seeks pleasure and, and, and delight in all of its, in all of its, in all of its uh, things. Um, we have an answer. We, have, we can give ourselves an experience of pleasure and delight, but a holy pleasure and a godly delight. Judaism and spirituality is extremely rich, but we have to develop that side in us that would, that would enjoy it, that gets a sense of an appreciation for, for, for that. So that requires, now the first thing required, and then eventually, the neshama, not only will it be able to uh, fight and balance the animal, the animal soul inside of us, but then to ultimately take control of the animal and make the body its servant, where the body is serving the soul. And then we live a spiritually fulfilled life, and then we are fulfilling our purpose for what God sent us down into this world. But for that, we have to understand the mechanics of how the nisham is hardwired, how it works, both the hard, the hard drive of the soul and also the software which Hashem has given us in order to help develop the nisham. So we learned last week that the soul is made up from ten powers. Um, the soul's ten powers are equivalent and similar or they match the, 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 the divine attributes because it's derived from the, of, of, from the divine attributes. God too manifests himself with the personality the human personality, and the neshama being derived from a lakus, from godliness, has these ten powers which make up the, the nature of the soul. And uh, we said that these ten powers of the soul are divided into two main categories, the intellect and the emotion. The soul is an intelligent being, also an emotional being. Through its intelligence, it gets to know the intelligence, like we understand intelligence, Intelligence is the manner in which we become familiar, we, become, we get to know our surroundings, and we have a guide and something to direct us in our lives, what is good and what is bad and the like. And then emotion. The neshama is, has feelings, has emotions, which, in which it operates. And, um, and the, way, the way it works is that the intellect is first and then comes the emotions. Because first, in order to take, what is an emotion? Emotion is an excitement for something, you want, emotion is, 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 is excitement. You're moved by something. And either, and again, as we mentioned last week, there's two main emotions, chesed and gevura, which means attraction and contraction. We either are attracted to something because we find that this thing is desirable, it's lovely, and it's good, it's worth getting close to it, or we can find out that something is frightening and we pull away from it, or something is negative, harmful, or repulsive, and then we are pulled back, we move away from it. So the emo But in order for us to have a, an emotional reaction to something, you first have to have the intellectual awareness about it. So that's why the intellect plays a pivotal role, not only a pivotal role, but the most important role, the most important asset in our godly soul is our mind. That's its main power, is the power of its mind, its power of, of, the, of the intellect. Not to say that that's the highest power of the soul. We have higher powers of the neshama. We have the power of amuna, faith, which is not intellectual. It's a, it's, it stems from a deeper place of our intellect. Our soul is connected to God in a very, very strong way, and that's where faith comes from. But faith doesn't have that much of an influence on our behavior, on our day-to-day -day activities. 
The reason for that is because faith is too, it's too deep within our soul. It's too removed. It's too high. And therefore, it doesn't impact our daily choices that much. That's why a person can be a man of faith and really believe in God and believe that God has certain expectations from us and wants us to live a moral, decent life and nevertheless act, even while they have the faith, totally in contradiction to, those, to that amuna, to that faith. And it doesn't mean that there is no faith. It doesn't mean that they're being hypocritical. The faith is true. It's just that the faith is too distant. It's too removed. In order for us to be impacted by something, we need to feel it in a more tangible, it has to be closer to us. And that's what our mind does. When our mind can understand what our faith feels and knows, and we can feed it through the, 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 our brain and our, our understanding, then what it will do is that will create an emotion corresponding to that, to that, to that reasoning, to that understanding, and that emotion will influence our behavior. When we have an emotion towards something, then we will behave accordingly. When we love something, we, we try to get close to it. And that's why the mind is so, so important. And particularly when we're dealing with the godly soul. See, the animal soul also has an intelligence. It's part of the makeup of both souls. The, the soul of darkness, the soul of klipa, also has an intelligence. But the animal soul's intelligence is, is secondary. It's not primarily an emotional being. And it has an intelligence as well. The intelligence in the animal soul serves as a general director of the animal soul's pursuits of where the emotions should go. See, the animal soul, here's the thing, the difference between our animal soul and our godly consciousness. Our animal consciousness is living in, an, in its environment. It's living in the world that it relates to. It's very close. So, the, meaning the animal soul is a being that seeks pleasure and it receives its pleasure from the physical material world. The physical world is, is very close to us because we're living in bodies in, this, in, in, in the physical world. So that's why it's very real. So you don't need much meditation and thinking to make a pickle real. It's very real to you because you're physical and this is you eat it, it gives you some kind of a sensation. You don't need much meditation to have a desire to have nice clothing or to have a beautiful or nice, uh, a, 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 a nice comfortable car. It's, 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 it's real. The only thing we need is we need the intelligence to give some direction. For instance, certain food is harmful, it's poisonous, it isn't good, so the intellect will guide the emotions and say this is good for you this is bad for you this might look sweet it might taste good but it's harmful so it will give certain direction towards the emotions that's when we're dealing with the animal soul where the emotions are already turned on when you wake up in the morning you're already turned on that side of the heart is already turned on you're looking you're seeking you're looking for any kind of physical sensation that will that will, that, that will enhance your, your life. The godly soul, if you don't put in a lot of effort in turning it on and opening up the emotions, it won't happen. The, and the reason is because the godly soul, what it aspires to, what it wants, what it's reaching for, is to divinity, is to godliness. And godliness is not tangible. It's abstract. It's outside of our realm. So therefore, it's, it's distant. So we need something to journey to that distant place. 
That's our mind. Our mind can serve as a scout. Our mind can serve as an explorer. We use our mind, we send it off to learn, to study about certain things that are distant and far. And when our mind explores these things, we are going where our mind is. Because where a person's thought is, that's where they are, as the Baal Shem Tov's teaching is. Where your thoughts are, that's where you are. So when you direct your mind towards heaven, and you think about heaven, you think about it for a long time, as we're going to learn soon, and you, do a ther- you familiarize yourself with the heavenly reality, so you're there, and when you're there, you can begin emotionally to react towards the heaven, towards, towards spirituality, towards holiness. So that's why it is an absolute must that we use our mind, and we create, we fill our mind with holy, godly information. And this is something other than just Torah, meaning the fact that someone studies Torah and studies what we might call the, the revealed part, the halacha element of Torah, it nurtures your soul, definitely. It's giving a lot of strength to the soul because these are words of God. So eventually, of course, it, it, it keeps your soul healthy and, and enables a person to experience later love of Hashem. But it doesn't have the direct influence, what we're talking about over here. What we're talking about over here means that one studies godliness, you're studying about Hashem. And this is what Maimonides says. Maimonides says the only way that a person can come, Eichu aderech Hashem. How does a person come to love God? So the Maimonides says when a person contemplates the greatness, the majesty of God in the awesome creation that he created, and you think about it at a late, a long time, you see how great the universe is and how great, what kind of awesome creator this is, must have created this, you get, you get closer to Hashem, then you can love Him. You can't love someone that you don't know. So that's the importance of the mind. The mind needs to get to know godliness. We can't know God, but we can know godliness. We can know Hashem's, the godly light that is shining in the world. We can study through the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus and the like. This gives us an understanding in, 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 the, in the abstract, in the other, in the reality of heaven. And as a result of that, we can come to an appreciation of it. Now the mind itself is divided, we learned last week, into two parts. There are two main, really three, there are three faculties of the mind. They're called Chachma, Bina, and Das. Chachma means wisdom, Bina means understanding, and Das means knowledge. So last week we discussed, we're just going to go very, very briefly in reviewing this idea. What does this mean? What is the difference between the Chachma and the Bina? Chachma is the first, again, now we have to understand this, that these are human faculties, meaning this is a power that we have within our Nishama, but it's not only our soul. It's, it's any kind of thinking process. Any, in any time when a person is becoming familiar with new information, with new ideas, the way those ideas are filtered into your brain, the way those ideas enter into you, that they become real within you, is it has to go through two stages. First the stage of Chachma and then the stage of Bina. Chachma is a point. Chachma is the epiphany. When you're learning something, you're studying, you're in the dark, you don't understand. Whether you're learning Talmud and you get stuck on a difficult passage of the Tosfos and you can't figure it out, you're reading it again and again and again, it doesn't make any sense. Tosfos asks the question, you don't know what the answer is and you're really, you're banging your head again and again, you don't know. Or whether you're doing, you're, in, you're, you're, you're working on some 
some mathematical equation, some, and you're trying to figure it out, or you're in some other kind of business dilemma, and you don't know what to do next, and you're really thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking, and what do you do? You concentrate. Concentrate, and then suddenly, boom, and this, this, this new idea flashes in your mind. That's the Chachma. Chachma is the seed of an idea, a kernel of an idea. That's called conception. The, your soul, your mind has conceived a new, a new concept has entered into your mind. But that's only the first initial stage of understanding. The second stage is once you have the Chachma, which takes place on the right side of the brain, that's where creativity happens, the, 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 the next stage of the soul takes over, where the Chachma is transmitted to the left side of the brain where the Bina takes place. The Bina is the analytical part of the brain, the analytical part of the soul, where you begin to look at all the details and all the particles and all the, all, all, all the parts of it. You're dissecting it. So that's the Bina. Bina is dissecting a concept. And um, so Chachma is the first initial state. Now when you're in the Chachma state, the, it's still very, very vague. It's still very abstract. When you get it into the Bina, that's when you bring it down. That's when it becomes part of you. When you get the details, you're stretching it. That's when it, be, it gets assimilated. It fully, fully is digested in your brain. That's the Bina. It's yours. When it's in the Chachma, it's not yours yet. It's still distant. It's hovering. It's above you. But that's the way of all intellect. It always goes through these two stages. Chachma first, and bina, creativity, and then um, grasping. See, another word for bina, which we use, is the term of hasaga. Hasaga means, hasaga means to literally. It means we use the, the term hasaga means to grasp, but the actual literal translation of it, it means to reach it. It's like when someone is far away and you're running after that person. You're running and running and running in order to reach that person. So first you see him. It's a friend you've been looking for a long time. And then you're running. So the same is Chachma is a point when you, it's, you, you have a glimpse. You glimpse a new idea. But the idea is still distant and far. That's why you don't know the details. Hasaga, the Bina process is where you are try, you're, 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 you're reaching for the idea to fully grasp it. You, you want to go there completely and really have it. That is why you need the Chachma and the Bina together in order for the intelligence to create emotions. Didn't, I, forget, I didn't mention it today yet, but I think that the intellect are called the parents and the emotions are called children, they're called offspring. Because emotions are born, especially in the godly soul, our emotions are born our, out of our understanding. As mentioned earlier, when you understand and appreciate the richness of something, the desirability of something, the beauty of something, that's when you're drawn to it, that's when you have an emotional reaction. But in order to have an emotional reaction, you need to have both parts of the mind. You need to have the Chachma and the Bina. If you only have the Chachma, if you only glimpse something and you only have the point, and you don't fully, fully comprehend it and fully understanding, it will not create an emotion. Because in order for you to be moved by something, that something has to be very close to you. Only when it's very close, it has impact on you to excite you. So in to, 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 to react in an excited manner. And in Chachma, it's still distant. Hashem Hashem is revealing Himself to me from the distant, from far. It's removed. There's no re they can't, therefore, there can't really be an emotional reaction. Or if there will be an emotional reaction, it will be very weak and it will wither out very quickly. It won't be permanent, it won't be lasting. In order for it to be a solid emotion, an excitement, you have to take the idea that you studied 
and really chew on it and chew on it again and again and really understand it thoroughly. And only when you understand it thoroughly, that's when it can create an emotion. That's why Chachm and Bina are called father and mother. Because just like in the creation of a child, the Chachma, the father contributes a point and the mother develops the child in the womb. Same is also the relationship of the Chachma and the Bina. And we see that the Bina, interesting, the mother has a far more apparent and, and um, revealed relationship with her child. The father, the child comes from the father, but it's not as apparent, it's not as known. But the mother, she carries the child for nine months, that's where the child is developing. Same is also with the, with, with the, with the manner in which the intellect uh, affects the emotion. The Chachma gives, gives you a point, it gives you a point of reference. It gives you an idea to think about, but you're still very, very far from it. Until you don't develop it in the Bina, like the mother who has the emotion within her, developing it, the idea is fully developed, then the reaction to the idea can also come out. An emotion, a feeling can come out. And the emotion is born. Now, Chachma is called, the etymology of the word Chachma is called, the, the Kabbalists tell us that Chachma is made up of two words. Koach ma, which means the power of what? Koach ma, the power of what? What does it mean that Chachma is called the power of what? That is because when you have a Chachma experience, an epiphany, it's still very, you don't really have it yet, as we said earlier. So you're still asking what? Koach, it's a power, it's already a power, it's the beginning of an idea, it's the beginning of something, but it's still ma, it's still what is it, you're still wondering, what is it? And that is seen in two, two, in two, in two. the fact that the idea that in the Chachma you don't really, you can't define it yet, it, we can notice it in two, in two ways. And we all have this experience. You ever have this when you're studying with someone or learning and a new idea comes to your mind and you snap your fingers and you say, ah, I got it. And the person says, what is it? Or then the phone rings and so on. And you get distracted. What happens? You lose it. Just as fast as it came. And you say, oh, leave it. Try to get it back. Right? No, it's lost. Sometimes you can retrieve it. Sometimes you can't retrieve it. Why? You had it already, because you didn't have it. It was there. It was hovering on your mind. It was, it was entering, so to speak. It's still dangling from above. It's an idea that came from the pre-intellect pre into the intellect. It's still dangling. And if we don't grab it down, we can lose it. That's number one. The second thing is, even if you're not, even if you didn't lose it, if someone, if your colleague, friend, asks you at that time, okay, so if you got it, explain it to me. Tell me what. You say, wait, 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 give me. You can't explain it, you have no words. You have no words, you have no definition. So you say, hey, you don't, you don't know it. I do know it. I know I know something, but I, but I can't explain it. Because... Chachma, still too abstract. It's ma, what is it? Like the man last week in the parsha, also was a very abstract kind of a food because it was a very godly food. So the Jews went out and they said, what is this? What is it? Is it, is it bread? Is it vegetable? Is it what color? It didn't have any, 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 any fixed uh, identity and beingness because it came from, from Chachma. So it's called ma. That's the stage of Chachma. The Bina is already the next stage, fully taking it, fully grasping it. And then we can move on to the emotions. Now, what happens in our soul? Can, this is the power of conceiving ideas always. In our neshama, 
we have a soul which has a capacity to familiarize itself with godliness. And that's the only thing that interests the, in, the intelligence of the neshama. The only thing it wants to know is it wants to know about Hashem. So what do we need to do in order to develop a holy intelligence? We need to study. Study, study, study godliness. What do we study? So the Tanya tells us like this. What we're supposed to think about God is that we're supposed to think about Hashem, but what can we know about God? What we can know about God is three elements. There's three stages in divine knowledge because God manifests himself on three levels. Now, each of these levels has myriads of levels on their own, but these are general categories in the manner in which Hashem can become known to us. What are these three levels of Hashem? The three levels of Hashem are as follows. He says the first level is called Memale Kalalman. Memale Kalalman means that God fills all the worlds. He fills the worlds. The second level, I'm going to get back to it, what that means. The second level is called Sovev Kalalman. That God is bigger than the world. He encompasses all of the worlds. And then there's a third level that's called Kula Kamei Kalachshiv. It comes from a, a Pasuk in Daniel, in Daniel. All before him is like naught. That's a higher level of divinity. So we have, again, God fills the universe. God encompasses the universe, surrounds the universe. And that God is so exalted and so much greater than the universe that the universe doesn't, literally doesn't, is a non-entity. It doesn't exist in his eyes. On that level, the world doesn't exist. Now, let's understand for a moment, what is this, let's go through the, the, these various different levels. Mamalakalama means like this, that Hashem creates the world by, by adapting His infinite creative power to create every creation with a particular energy that is fitting and tailored fit, compatible to that creation. And God doesn't just say, let there be a world. God spoke directly to every creation in order to create it. Various combinations of godly letters, of speech, of the divine utterances, form the inner chemistry of every creation and every being. So Hashem contracts His infinite power and lowers it down from level to level. It goes through powerful filtrations, levels of screening, where it gets character, definition, and, and also constricted, less and less, that it can create lower forms of life as it goes, as it channels through the various different dimensions of creation, creating worlds and worlds and worlds, lower and lower. And we understand that today is two bishvat, so we're thinking about plants. There is another, a, a different, there is a unique life force that creates a blade of grass. And that life force is different than that which creates, that which creates a gigantic sequoia tree. They're both plant, they're both within the plant world, but they're two different kinds of creatures two different kinds of being. Therefore, they have a unique, different energy. It's not, the, difference is not, the difference is not only in the creation, the difference is also in the creator's life force that is transmitted to that creation to give it life. And then within the trees itself, you have an apple tree, you have an orange tree. So it's a different design, a different power, different force, <laughs> unique to this particular creation. And so is every creature and every being has its own power that's giving it life. Of course, 
in this lowest, our physical universe, godly light is the most constricted, the most limited. And it's very, very, very weak in comparison to the divine manifestations in the higher spiritual worlds, where the, where the angels are far more expansive, far greater, and then higher and higher and higher. But that's the mamale kalam. And here is what it means to meditate on that. To meditate on that means to familiarize yourself with, first of all with, to think about all the, the, the various creations that there are around us, just in the flick, that's what Maimonides is talking about, to think about how many kinds of butterflies there are, and how many different kinds of plants there are, and how all of existence is synchronized one with each other, and how God created every creature and provides for that creature. Each and every one of them gets its food at the right time, and how the world works in such a magnificent harmony and synchronization, and the billions and billions of creatures. You see the richness of God's imagination, and you see His endless power, and how He created so many creatures, and how powerful He must be. As you go higher, and we're going to do that a little further on in the class, do a little bit of a journey through the Mamalakalam and type of a contemplation. But that's what a person meditates on, how Hashem imbues the world and fills the world, every place with its own unique life. Then we move on to the next level of godliness. The higher level of godliness, which we should fill our minds with, we should become, we should get to know this, is the level of God called Sovev Kalam. Sovev Kalam means that God surrounds the universe. But what does it mean it surrounds the universe? It means that God's light, a power, an energy that is emanating from God that has not been adapted, that has not been contracted, that has not been personalized to every creature and every being. It relates to all of creation in uniform, in equal. It, 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 it relates to everything exactly the same. Why? Because this is an energy that remains um, uncontracted. It remains, therefore, it remains above all of creation. Now, when we say it's above, it doesn't mean that, it's, that, it's, that, it, that we don't have any relationship with it. The reason why we're meditating upon it is because we want to recognize that this too has a relationship with us. This energy, this infinite light of God called the Sov of Kalaman, first of all, it doesn't, it's not outside. It's everywhere. This light of God is everywhere. But when we say it's, 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 um, it's Sovev, it means that the creations can't get a grasp on it. They can't understand it. They can't know it. Because it's, it's, it's infinite, it's beyond us. It has an impact on the creation, in a sense even more than the mamalic contracted energy. Its impact that it has on the creation is that this gives us, it's responsible for, 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 our, for our existence, but it's responsible for our existence not in the specific elements and character of how we exist, that is derived from the tailored energy, the mamalakalam and life force, rather it's responsible for our very beingness, for our very existence, for the fact that we are, that there is. See, the, 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 the common idea that all creatures have the same. I think a tree is very different than a monkey, but they have something in common. They both exist, and they both exist as physical beings, and they both occupy space, so they have quite, quite a lot of things that are in common, and they both have life to them, right? But even if you were to take the most, the most extreme things that there, that there is, the, the a, 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 a kernel of, of, of a, 
of sand, or a, I'm sorry, a, a, a piece of sand, and, a, and the highest angel, an angel of great light, they share something in common, is that they exist. There is a beingness, Hashem made them. That ability, to, to, the power to bring the world into existence, is not coming from the contracted light of God, but it's rather coming from the infinite light of God. It's the infinite power of Hashem that's making us exist. Why? Because it's not within the power of a finite energy to do that. It requires an infinite power. Why does it require an infinite power? Because to make something, to, to bring the world into existence, God created it from nothing. Something from nothing. Because he created it from something from nothing, the transition from nothing to somethingness requires an infinite force. Why? Because what's the difference between zero to one? It's an infinite distance. The difference between one and two is already a finite distance. And the proof to that is, understand, because when you, when you double the one, if you have one, and you double the one, what do you get? You get two. And if you add two times the one, then you have three already. So which means that to get from one to two, you only need to add one of what you have. This limited amount, another time. And if you add more, it'll be more than that, more than two. So you see that it's from one to two is, of course, a finite distance. But from zero to one is an infinite distance. Because if you double the zero, you will still have zero. And if you double and if you triple the zero, again zero. And if you make the zero, multiply the zero a, a million times, a billion times, it's still zero. So what, what, what requires over here is a, a something that is infinite, something that is limitless, that could make the change from nothingness and create something. And that's why this infinite power is responsible to create us. Which means that this infinite light of God is here right now in this room and everywhere. It's not within space. But we can't say that He's not here because Hashem is everywhere. And it's here and it's very much active in our existence in bringing us into existence. What does the, what does the other light of God do? The mamalakolaman, the finite energy of God that is tailored to us? That is responsible for the particular features and style and flavor of each and every one of our existence. Of how we exist, what is the personality and the character of every creation. That comes from the condensed, contracted light of Hashem. But our existence itself comes from the Soviv Kalaman, from the infinite light of Hashem. Now, both these energies, now it's interesting, this infinite light, how far is it from us, from our experience? Endless. We can't feel it. We can't know it in a very personal, and a very direct, and a very inner way. We can't know it. The mamalakalalman energy, the, the indwelling light of God is knowable. And the creations feel it, the creations sense it. Down here below, we're coarse, we don't feel anything. We can walk around parading around for days oblivious to God completely. But when we go a step higher than this world, if we are to enter into the spiritual realm where angels and creatures above are, they have a very powerful, keen, sharp awareness of that there, is a, that there is a God creating them. They feel it. But what do they feel? They feel the energy that is limited and defined in their existence. How far is that infinite light from the experience of the creations? Infinite from us. And the interesting thing is, it, the relationship of that, of that life force to the creation is equal. Meaning, the lowest creature, the lowest being in this world, and the highest being are equally far from that infinite light. Because even the highest creation and the highest being has definitions and boundaries. And God has no boundaries. This is infinite. 
So therefore it transcends all of creation equally. It isn't any closer in heaven than it is to earth. That's this second dimension of godliness. However, both these levels of divinity are levels of divine light. They're levels of godly radiance of God light. They're not God himself. But then there's a third level behind that, and that is Hashem himself. So these are emanations of godly light. Then there is what is beyond that, and that is Hashem who is higher than the creation, higher than the energy that emanates from him to the creation. See, these are two lights. It's only that one emanation, one radiance, contracts itself to the world. The other emanation doesn't contract, remains in its remains in its power as it is when it emanated from its source. The source is infinite, so the light is infinite. The other light contracts itself and adapts itself. But the equal, what, is, what is equal about both or similar in both these things is that they're just lights of Hashem. They're not God, they're not God Himself. There is a level beyond that, which is Hashem Himself, where over there we say, Kula kamei kloch shiv. All existence is not in His eyes. Not not meaning that the creations, as magnificent as the world is, as endlessly great that the worlds are, they are absolutely as if they don't exist. In the true perspective from Hashem Himself, who is so, so, so beyond all of creation. Because creation was created only from the divine light, not from Hashem Himself. So it's like, for instance, you know, light emanating from the sun. The light that emanates from the sun is, is, doesn't have anything of the substance of the sun, right? It's not like the sun gets weaker because it's shining light. It's only a reflection. It's an outer reflection. There's the sun, and there's the reflection of it. So, and the interesting thing is that it doesn't matter to the sun what happens to the reflection. For instance, we're not gonna say that the sun gets, feels down one day because it, let's say the entire world is cloudy. And everywhere there is no light. The sunlight is not reach, reaching planet Earth. You say, well, the sun feels kind of unimportant today because it couldn't give life. Well, you say, well, the sun doesn't have any feelings. Well, Maimonides says that the sun has a soul. And it's a soul that has wisdom higher than human intelligence. So the sun has a, has a neshama, has some kind of a soul. Does the sun but feel bad that its light did not reach earth? No, because the sun's light is just a reflection. It's different than, let's say, for instance, a teacher that is teaching a student. When a teacher is teaching your student, so even you're giving off a projection of your, of, your, of your understanding to the student. If the student doesn't get it, if you're looking at the student and you see the student is looking there and their eyes are just lost, so the teacher is frustrated. Why? Because I'm trying to teach you something and it's not entering, you're not absorbing it. But the sun is not, in, is not impacted whether the light reaches earth or it doesn't because the sun is not involved in shining this light. The light comes on its own. It's not in it, it's not trying to do it. So too, all of creation that is created from the, these projections of godliness doesn't impact God one iota. That's why it says about Hashem, Ani Hashem Loishanisi, I have not changed. And to Him, is as if creation never happened. That's why the creations are not. Why is it so important for a person to realize this level, to realize this level of godliness? Because, we're gonna see soon, when, these, when this realization kicks in, now, when a person really understands this and grasps it, the emotions that are going to react to this kind of a feeling is going to be so intense and so powerful. But 
to the point where the person wants to break out of all limited existence and to melt into God. So therefore, the, the more a person perceives the nothingness of our existence in compared to God, the more the fire of the soul will be turned on to free itself from existence that is meaningless. From a world that has no existence, no, no importance to it, because the only reality that's really, really, really true and real is Hashem. And that we can only say on the essence of God. Because the other levels of divinity, if our perception of Hashem is relating only to the lower levels of divinity, those levels of godliness give some respect to the creation. The creation is meaningful. Let's understand, simply. The mamalakalam light, the light of Hashem that is adjusted and particularized to every creation, definitely respects the creation in the sense that the whole reason why it's contracting itself to every creation is because it wants to create it. So Hashem is matching, He's fitting Himself to the creations that He's creating. So you can't say the creation is meaningless, so why is He contracting Himself to it? Hashem is very busy on this level, God is very busy creating the world. Now even on the level of the infinite light that surpasses all of creation and encompasses all creation equally over there too we can't say, there we might say, well it's infinite, so the worlds are finite, they're meaningless to it. No, because the reason God emanated that light, see it's different than the sun. The sun's light comes involuntarily. Hashem voluntarily allowed that light to come out. Why did God shine that light to the world? Is ultimately because He wants it to reach the creation. It should be a platform for the creations to exist, to be built on. For that reason, it too has some, some recognition of the creation as being something. But the level of divinity that, as we said, that transcends the ray of the other creations are not. Now here a person should meditate on these things. Now, what, 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 how do you meditate? We'll speak about that in a few moments. But before that, the author, the Tanya, says something like this. What's going to happen when you, do a medit when you meditate on this? When you think about God, how God fills the universe, and how if God's light would leave the universe, the world couldn't exist for one moment. And everything I've heard and everything I've seen throughout my entire life, every experience, every pleasure, every delight, every, every person I've met, everything that I've ever seen and known, which turns me on and gets me excited, I'm interested in, it evokes passions, desire, want, or whatever it is. All those things, their existence, the true underlying existence is God. And then there are billions of other things that I don't know. Wow, how flavorable must God be? How delightful, how powerful must He be if these are the little creations that He has created? But He says emotions and excitement will emerge. What kind of an excitement? So he says the first excitement that will come out is fear. We will experience a fear of Hashem. He calls it a, what kind of fear? Not a fear of punishment. We're not talking about punishment. Far beyond that. It's not a fear of, it's not a fear of sin. Is it not? Because sometimes you're afraid of someone because they can punish you. They're, they're, they, have, they have an authority, they have power, and you're afraid of the punishment. Then you can be afraid of someone because they're great. You just don't, you're afraid to disobey them, not because they're going to punish you. They're very, very big, they're very mighty, and they're very strong, so you're afraid, I'm scared to disobey them. You're afraid of a king because you're afraid to disobey the king. That's a higher level of fear. It's not, it's not a punishment. You're sensing the king more 
than yourself even. And that's why you're afraid to disobey him. But over there, the fear is also relating to behavior. Because the fear is not, it's not causing you entirely to contract. It's not causing you to become small and tiny. What it's doing is, it's restraining you from acting in a manner that will not be in accordance to the approval of the king. That's what you're doing. But here he's talking about a deeper fear. And he says, when the neshama, when the soul contemplates on the, on the above information that we spoke about before, and the greatness of God, the feeling that will be felt within the neshama is a feeling that the soul will feel ashamed. It will feel tiny, it will feel bashful, small. And what kind of shame? Not because I did something wrong, not because I'm bad. I'm ashamed with my entire existence. In the presence of you, when I know you're in the room, when I know you're here, and you're so awesome, and you're so great, and you're so endless, I feel, I feel, I feel that I, 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 I can't stand. I can't stand in your presence. I'm so insignificant, I'm so inimportant. It's a very powerful, humbling experience. The closest we can come to that is if anybody ever came into a counter with a huge tzaddik. A tzaddik that is just of awesome proportions. You know, a tzaddik who knows all of the Torah, who sees in all worlds, who is a <clears throat> miracle worker, and you walk inside in front of this person. You're ashamed. You're shaking. You're quivering. But what are you, what are you quivering? It's not because you're afraid he's going to yell at you. And it's not because you're afraid that you sin. Sometimes people are afraid they sin. They try to cover their head when they go to a tzaddik because all the sins are in the forehead. But tzaddikim can see through your hat. So it doesn't really make a difference. But the, 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 the fear that one has is you're intimidated by his greatness. He's the nicest person, but you're intimidated because you're standing in front of someone so big and you feel so small. For people who didn't have the opportunity to see a tzaddik like that, that made you feel tiny and small. So I guess we can use an example. If you are into a certain, a certain uh, uh, let's say you're into music, and you create your own music, you're a composer, and you make music, and you make songs, and stuff like that. And you like your music, and you're proud of music, and you feel very good about yourself. But then, you get to meet one of the great musicians, one of the greatest musicians in the world, greatest musicians in history. And you walk into this person, you're with them. You feel tiny, you feel ashamed, you feel small, you feel kind of silly with your music. Or a great artist. Even though you're, quite, you know, you're good in your art, or a sports, you know, someone who's like sports, this is like, oh, you're just small. It makes you, or someone who's got a lot of money, but he comes into the into front of someone, it's a silly thing, but someone who's a billionaire, so well, your millions mean nothing. You feel small, insignificant. So this is the first feeling that Nishama feels. It's humbled. It feels very, very tiny and small in the presence of God and unimportant. And as a result of that, it's willing to give itself over completely to live its life to satisfy God, not to satisfy myself. To do what Hashem wants of me, because He's important, I'm nothing. That's the feeling of humility, that's the first feeling. The second feeling that he says will emerge, the second the feeling that should progress after that, is a feeling of love. Now I do want to say, it's not always that the fear and the awe will emerge from a contemplation before the love. It's possible that it should happen the other way around. It's possible that a person should experience First a love, first a yearning, first a desire to cleave to God, and afterwards they can experience a sense of awe and fear. But the 
That's, but that's a, that is an exception. The regular, normal feeling in which a healthy soul will experience divinity is if you truly do a serious meditation, it must bring you first to a sense of awe and humility and afterwards the love. But the, 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 the author, the Tanya, when he begins to explain the love, it's unbelievable. On what kind of rich and intense experience he talks about. He says when a person meditates on this above that we had mentioned before, what's going to happen is that the soul is going to glow, is going to go on fire. The person is going to experience a longing, a burning, a thirst, to the point where they will reach a point where he says expiration of their soul. The soul, which means when they understand and appreciate God's greatness, the soul will become so inflamed, so intensely uh, thirsty to, to, to connect to God that it will reach, it will reach a point where it, it, it's, it's, it's possible that the soul will escape the body. He calls it a fiery flaming, like flaming coals. He brings from King David. My soul is yearning for you. I'm burning for your light. Because through the understanding and appreciation of God's infinite light and His power and His greatness, you want to get close to that light. You want to, get, you want to reach for it. And later in Tanya, he describes it like this. He says, first, there is a, there is a, a fire, a passion. Then the passion translates into, then the translates, tra translates into a thirst. What is a thirsty? When are you thirsty for something? See, there's two kinds of love. There is a love that is called love like water, and there's love that's called love like fire. Love like water is when you love someone very much, and you enjoy being close to them. You enjoy their company. It's a friend you haven't seen in a long time. You're excited that you're, you're gonna see them. You have coffee together. It's nice, and you feel the pleasure of the company. That's watery, it's calm. But then there is a different kind of a love. And that's a love of passion. It's a love of fire. It's a love where you're thirsting. See, the watery love is also like a little child. The child loves their parent. A little child is lost. He's crying. I want my. Right? But when the mother picks up the child, puts the child on the lap, the child is content and happy. But then the love of fire is a different kind of a love. It's a love where you want to stop being who you are and you want to melt into the other individual. You want to melt into the other. In our case, it's God. You don't want to be yourself. You want to break out. It never, it never gets happy. It's a burning love. It's the idea of thirsting. You're thirsting because you don't have it. It's beyond. Later in Tanya, he describes that that's from the, from the, from the, from the Tzimayin. He says a person will come to choyla sahava. Literally, a sickness of love. The soul is fever, feeling feverish. It's a fever. It's a burning. And it's an unquenchable thirst. The Holy Baal Shem Tev once met a doctor. And the Baal Shem Tev stuck out his hand and he said, here, check my pulse, tell me if I'm okay. And the doctor felt his pulse and the doctor said, you have an illness. You have an illness. And the Baal Shem Tev said, and the, but the doctor said, so what is my illness? He says, I don't know. So the Baal Shem Tev said, well, he didn't tell him, but he said, well, he will never know what my sickness is. My sickness is chayla sahavla. My sickness is a burning passion for God and with an unquenchable thirst where I cannot take it out of my mind for one minute and I'm literally in, inflamed with a feverish desire and that's called the sickness of the soul. Well, it's a wonderful sickness. That the, the machla of, of choylas ava. And then from there, 
comes the next stage of Kloisa Nefesh. Kloisa Nefesh, like the Arachayim HaKadosh, describes when the two sons of Aaron died. They died, they were burnt up in a fire. He describes, when he, he, and you can tell from the description that he describes is he's not talking about a description that he doesn't know of. The Holy Arachayim, when he discusses Aaron, he says when sometimes someone gets so close to God and they feel the sweetness, the delight, the pleasure, the sensation of divinity, of godliness, that even though they feel that their soul cannot, can, they cannot withstand cannot withstand coming, because if you're going to come close, the soul is just going to be pulled in. If you take a little fire, a little flame, and you put it next to a big fire, what happens? The little flame is going to jump and be absorbed in the big fire, and it's going to be, and the wick is going to become extinguished. It's going to get lost. The soul feels that it's going to be lost, but the soul can't restrain itself. It can't. And it just poops, and it just gets eaten up by godly light. So the Arachayim says that, that that's the love of tzaddikim. And that was their death. It was considered a sin because God doesn't want us to die in His light. Hashem wants us to bring godly light down into the world, so we have to remain in bodies. The holy Rebbe Melech of Lezensk, the great tzaddik Rebbe Melech of Lezensk, in the middle of his davening, you can take a look at his face. There was madness. You can look at his eyes bulging. He was somewhere else. His face was, was a flame, red. And in the middle of the prayer, you would see, he would grab out, he had a pocket watch. He would take out his pocket watch and he would look at the time. And it was the only reason, and it's known, that he did that because he was in a moment of expiring. A moment, if he wouldn't have grabbed the, the clock to look on, his soul would depart. Because it would, it would melt, it would tear itself away from the physical, from the, from the wick, like a fire. Tearing itself away from the wick that's holding it. Now, other tzaddikim would, didn't know if they're going to make it through prayer. When they prayed, they would say, they would say goodbye to their wife and children. Because they didn't know if they were coming home. That's prayer. That's how we're all going to pray when Mashiach comes. It's prayer. There's a soul that's really feeling what it's saying. And you feel the majesty and the greatness of God. The author, the Tanya, even though he is the intellectual brand of Hasidus, and he emphasizes the intellect, was a very fiery emotional person. And when he prayed, the emotions would get a hold of him, sometimes so intense that he would faint. Many times in the middle of davening, he would faint. Then, he would go into such convulsions, frightening convulsions. He looked like a madman. In the middle of prayer, he would look like a madman. The great mind of the Tanya, when his heart went beyond his mind and would get so excited, he would fall into a madness. And he would run around the room, not knowing what's happening, and he would bang into the walls. So the Hasidim had to put cushions all over the room so when he prays that he doesn't hurt himself. One time he was in the midst of his prayer, in the middle of his davening, and his soul, and, 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 and uh, the, he was davening long, so people left. And he was left alone in his prayers. He was in a At that time, he was silent and quiet. And the Hasidim came back an hour or so later, they didn't find him. He was nowhere to be found. So they're looking all over in the house here, they're around, and they don't find him. Finally, the search, search goes on. They found him in the middle of a field, out, and they noticed something very strange. He had in his hand the top of the podium, the shtender that he davened with. They noticed in the shul that the top was broken off because he was in such a state of, of, of dveka, such a state of yearning and connection, he didn't even know what he's doing. He broke with his, the strength, he broke off the shtender, the, the top of it, and went running into the field like that, not knowing where he is. That's the type of love that he's talking about. The rapture of love. That I am burning with love. All that is available to any neshama any soul, if we take the time 
to think about godliness, to think about Hashem, to think about His awesomeness. And that's getting uh, nine. It's getting late. I just want to do a very quick meditation, just because the relative. If we do it next week, it won't have the same um, impact. So if we do this, and we realize how the, how is this done. So in the morning when you pray, you can either do it in shul in your talis, or you can if you're you can dive in, in your in a garden in the back of your house. Take a look, see, look at your surrounding. You're saying Baruch Sha'ama Vahoya Oilam, blessed is the one who spoke and the world was created. The world came into being this. Look around. There's grass in the in the yard, there's grass. Every grass is created by God. Each one, if you put it under a microscope, is different. It looks different. On each grass, there are little insects. Some of them you can see, some of them you can't see. Each insect has this incredible computer of how the insect works. And then in the garden, and you have flies and spiders and other bugs, and trees are magnificent of a tree. Got roots, and then a bark, and then a, a, the, the bark, and the, the trunk of the tree. And the trunk, besides for it being solid thing that can hold the tree it's useful you can use it to making wood build things from it and the like then it creates leaves and the leaves and then from there come fruits and the fruit has texture and color it's beautiful it's nice it's tasty so many different kinds of fruit that God imagined from nothing each fruit has a seed in it that can create the entire tree and that can continue generating fruit forever and ever and ever with an endless and endless supply. What kind of awesome wisdom of a God who created all of this. And then on the top of the tree you hear chirping of birds. Every bird is created. Everyone has a purpose. God feeds every single one, takes care of them, created each one with its, with its character and its particular way. Take a look at all the flowers. Notice all the colors, the finest art that Hashem has made. It's crazy. It's unbelievable. But then you say to yourself, well, okay, this is my little garden. My neighbor next door also has a garden. And over there too, there is all these grass and trees and, fly, and, 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 and bees and flies and all the things that are there. And then you try to expand that, like a, like a whole block. And all the families that live in your block, different people, different, they're so different one from each other. Hashem cares for each and every one of them. Everyone plays a role in creation. And then think about the neighborhood. And the neighborhood, take, think about the whole city. How many people live in this city? Mill I don't know, a few million people live in LA. All the people that live here. Everybody's doing their thing, but God created each and every one of them. No two look the same. Everybody's different. And everyone has what to eat. Everyone is taken care of, some way or another. And then, and then you think about, so this is, this is one city in all of California. But you have to do it slowly, because you have to get the Bina. If you don't get the Bina, and you're just, yeah, God created the whole universe and it's great. It means nothing. But when the universe suddenly becomes big in your mind, when the world becomes big, think about California, then you think about the entire United States and the various different zones. There is desert. And with all the particular creatures that are in the desert, and then there are mountains, and then there are forests with different, with different animals and different birds that inhabit those places. And there are the wetlands, and there are the rivers, and there are the great lakes. And every lake has its character with its kinds of fish that are in the lake, and how many types of fish that there are. And then there are the oceans with the billions and tr billions and the, swarming with life. And then there is, you expand that, 
encompass the entire world, the billions of people that are here. And then you recognize, well, the, how big is planet Earth in the overall spec of the universe? Tiny, small, really, really, really nothing. You can't see it. If you map out the universe, you couldn't see the, 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 the planet, the Earth. Now, how, clo how, how close are we to the closest star? Four light years away. I remember from my days when I studied science, how long it would take us to travel to the closest star, maybe more than a million years with a rocket ship. That's the closest star. How many stars are there? How far is one star from the other one? Just as far as Earth is, maybe even farther, one from each other. And amongst the stars, there is the sun. What's the size of the sun? The sun is big, awesome being. Well, how big? The sun is a million three hundred thousand times the size of the Earth. That means one Earth, another Earth, three Earths, four Earths, five Earths. Each time you're adding an Earth as big as this one, right? Each one. A 10, 20, 30, 60, 100, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 Earths. And you're still not there. You're still very far from there. A million three hundred thousand Earths make up that one sun. And then the sun with its entire family, the solar system, is only a tiny little speck in the galaxy. And the galaxy, the size of the galaxy, is... I, 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 I forgot, that we once did this in a class, exactly how long... See, the, the, the sun, the solar, the solar system, with all the stars that are surrounding it, are moving through the galaxy with incredible speed. I think it's something like 2,000 miles a minute, maybe even a second, I'm not to remember. But whatever it is, it's, it's, an, it's, it's, being, it's, it's moving around the galaxy at enormous speed. But the sun and the, the entire solar system has not made its way around the galaxy yet since the world was created five and a half thousand years ago. It would take the sun to go around the galaxy one time at this incredible speed over a million years to make its way around one time around the galaxy. It's enormous. It's, it's, if you think about this slowly, your mind can burst. And then you notice that this galaxy is only one tiny galaxy. They used to think it's the entire universe. Now they see that there is millions and I don't know how many other galaxies. It's endless. Now all this, all this magnificent creation, this is only the lowest creation that God created. Because the physical universe is the last and final creation. It was created with a crumb of a crumb of a crumb of a crumb. When I say a crumb of a crumb, I mean that literally. A crumb, and then from that crumb comes another crumb, which means the crumb is just a crumb of the first crumb. And then another crumb of crumb of a crumb of a crumb of a crumb of a crumb of godly light that creates the physical universe. The angels above, whoo, what kind of experience there are. They're magnificent. The energy that they possess is far greater than, than, than there is in the... In the, in, the, in, the physical, in the physical dimension of existence. And they too, there's trillions of levels of angels, endless amount of angels. All this is being created every second. God is everywhere all the time, knows every creation, knows every creation intimately, takes care of every creation all the time, and is creating it all with just a tiny little nothing of a nothing of his power. When you do this thoroughly for 15 minutes, there has to be a reaction. You have to feel some emotional response towards this thing. You can't remain indifferent. You can't remain cold. And really, you start realizing how foolish and how silly is all of our activities and all of our doings all day long. If we're not doing mitzvahs and we're not doing positive things, how silly. You have a look at a little mound of, of, of ants. 
there's two types of ants. There are bigger ants, double ants, like big, and then there's the tall and little ants. So you see these little ants, they're all in this, they look like a pile of sand, just a bunch of ants. Now you understand that amongst those ants, there's a whole hierarchy. There are the millionaire ants, and then there is the input, there's the mayor, and there's the governor, and the one in charge, and then there are the, the, the simple ants, a whole world going on. And you look at it and you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. this guy thinks he's the whole Kanaka of the ant colony. What's the ant colony? What is, it? What, is, what is the significant? And then you think about all of human beings and all that we're doing, again, making, and all the research, and, our, and our, uh, we send out into, into outer space the, uh, no, the, um, no, those things that take pictures, no? The, 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 the Hubble, I mean, the, the satellites that are, that are out all over. Well, what do we, and if I have a lot, of, and all I'm doing all my life is I'm trying to increase my wealth so I can have more, a bigger piece of what? A bigger piece of nothingness. But here, I have an opportunity to do a mitzvah and to cleave to the one who's beyond this entire whole system. And his very self I'm connecting to when I do a mitzvah. That's the excitement that comes from doing this kind of a meditation. So, Bezrat Hashem, we should all do this once in a while. It's very healthy for all of us and good for our neshamas. And Bezrat Hashem, soon we're going to have enough time to do it because Mashiach is going to come. There won't be any more worries. Take care, everyone.